It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOT podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at cboc.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts at cboc.com. Welcome. I'm Dr. Jeremy Lokabaugh, Industrial Organizational Psychology Consultant and Workplace Communication and Negotiation Coach. In addition to cboc.com that you just heard, you can also visit my website at turnboot.com. If you're in or getting into the IO psychology field and you feel a little lost in the crowd, you're looking to jumpstart your career and maybe get the answers that your degree program never gave you about what it's actually like to work as an IO psych practitioner, check out CBOC's IO Career Pathfinder membership at cboc.com. Also, we have Tom Bradshaw, voice and speech coach and a damn good actor at that. He is the leading voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community. Well, hello everyone and welcome to our weekly gathering for IOs, HR, all of those of us who uh, like to get together and help those in business, uh, dealing with making better business. Uh, Jeremy, we're today going to be talking about, and and I love this one because I've gone through a lot of training that (laughs) never really turned into behavioral change. So we're going to talk about how to turn training into behavioral change in the workplace. Uh, and yeah, you know, I'm, I think I'm like a lot of people who've gone through lots of training, usually initiated by HR. And it's great while we're doing the training, but there's no follow-up. There's no one making sure that these changes are actually being embraced by staff. And usually it's, you know, six months later, there is no change. These things have not been implemented. It sort of seems more like an organization has a training budget and all they're really concerned about is spending that training budget. They're not actually really concerned about results. Tom, you just hit on, I think, six great (laughs) points for ideas that we need to to talk about. So yes. Oh my gosh. So much there. It's something about 80% of training dollars and resources are wasted, just completely thrown down the drain. Yep. So they have a training budget. Uh, We've all been to these, you know, we've all been to a training where it's all right, great training. And then you forget about it completely as soon as you're done, or you forget about it as soon as you start the training. And it's so we're, we're going to talk about, you know, how do you, how, how does a facilitator work with, how do you do the pre-work first, right? To get people, someone excited about it. Then how do you do the facilitation aspect so that while you're facilitating, they're completely engaged. And then also with that follow-up and support after the fact, the question always comes up with, with ROI. I'm going to throw this in before I forget with ROI. If you guys take a look, We've got our our, uh, our events topic ideas for July and August, and we're starting to do some of these kind of you know rip from the headlines where we're going to look at something that's out there, a study that's done, and maybe an article that discusses the study. So there's some really interesting things uh, that we're going to talk about, and one ROI is always a, a discussion point with with training or with any kind of organizational consulting work, and I'll have the quote for the event in which it's applicable. But there was a quote from somebody high up in an organization that said, ROI, in some cases regarding training, I believe, is no longer needed to be calculated. It's implied. So it's an interesting interesting statement. And on that note, I sat into the... 
it was a conference and I heard the CEO of the Hershey food or is the, uh, the VP of HR for the Hershey food company, the big Hershey food company, you guys get all your chocolates. And somebody asked her about that. I think it was a, an ASTD conference. And she, she said in terms of ROI, she said she doesn't look for ROI anymore. She looks for return on expectation. So in general on the ground, you know, what's happening. So if an employee goes through a training and they are, you know, yelling at, yelling at the customers and getting frustrated with the customers, if that stops, then that means the training worked because that's what the training was expected to do. So there's a lot of different interesting points. And when you actually look, we're not going to talk, we're not going to get into ROI, but you sparked a thought. When you get into ROI, when you look into the science of it, and when you look into what it takes, there sometimes it takes so much data and so much calculation that it costs more to figure out what the ROI is than the ROI that you would get from a particular initiative. I think there's something called the, I think it's called the ROI Institute and they have a lot of resources. I think that's what it's called. They have a lot of resources. And when you, when you look through and really read all about looking at ROI, you really, you want to make sure that you, if you're going to make sure you're getting ROI, that it's on an initiative that's worth calculating it. That's going to be big enough that you're going to follow through with. So just a word on ROI, because we are talking about training in which, as we said, 80 plus um, of the resources and dollars are wasted. Tom, over to you. Well, <laughs> you used the phrase pre-work. Um, <laughs> ah. Pre-work. Uh, I think the only pre-work I got the last time, you know, I was working with an organization and we had to do training was you have to do this training. You have to have it completed by a certain date or else we will be talking to you. That was the only form of pre-work that I ever experienced when it came to training. I want to go to you, Ariana, because <laughs> I'm sure there are some, you know, stories that you can share about your experiences of what has and hasn't happened. Training, honestly, feels like a really big bucket for me. Um, I remember in my graduate education, we had a full semester class on this topic. So, you know, it, there's a lot encapsulated in training. So, Tom, what came up for me is actually the type of trainings that we offer at LRN, the company I'm, I work for. And that's, you know, more of your mandated training. So we're in ethics and compliance. A lot of your trainings are going to be like that. You know, like sometimes trainings are just for here's best practices in information protection. Here's how you should set up your passwords. That is a certain category of training. But I've also worked in this space of leadership training. And that's a whole different monster, you know, and that requires more pre-work and engagement. And then facilitation needs to be really on key. And then you need to have a job environment that supports the newly learned leadership skills to be applied. So that's a, like a lot more complicated. So I'm kind of waiting to see where we go in the conversation, but happy to jump in as relevant. Well, and good plug for your organization as well. We'll, we'll handle it. Brittany, let's go to you. Yeah. I think one of the surprises that I've run into in the last couple of years is when companies would pull me in either to build a training together with them, or if they have a topic that they want me to just go build, they're okay with me doing a little bit of pre-work. They'll usually limit it. Like maybe I can only interview 10 employees and they would be okay with stuff like pre-surveys for the attendees and post-surveys and then me discussing that outcome with them. But I'm finding that once I'm kind of in with the company, I'm like on their roster, they're asking me to do you know a handful of trainings each year. They want nothing to do and they don't even want to talk about like doing pre-work to establish, do you actually need this topic? They just want me to either build something or do what they asked me to build. And then even getting them to help get the attendees to do pre 
or even just a post survey, I'm finding is a challenge. And I'm left like, I have no idea how effective this actually was for you. You know, I think it was great, but who knows if I'm right. And it doesn't seem like they so much care about that. I'm just kind of on their roster. So it's assumed it's all fine. It makes me feel unsteady. I don't love that. If other people have run into that, I would love to know how you combat that. I've done like in in training, you know, survey links, stuff like that. Still not super effective or great, but would love feedback from others. And so basically, Brittany, organizations are just looking to check the box that they've done training. Yep. Um, are are you seeing with with that kind of environment, are you actually seeing change happen in those workplaces? I that's hard. I would say most of my organizations are big enough that when I come each time, it's a bit of a different group. So I'm not always able to track how people are doing. And not all of these am I doing ongoing strategic work as well. So sometimes my touch points are only the trainings. So I'm just on campus, you know, six times a year, but I'm not really engaging past the trainings. Well, and maybe that's a general question for everybody today is in the training that you're doing, are you actually seeing change? And are the organizations getting in the way of that? Um, Brendan, let's go to you next. Then Dr. Martha, we're going to come to you. So as soon as Brittany started talking, I have been dealing with a lot of the same issues that she has. So I could definitely uh, relate to this. When you're already working with them on a strategic basis, it's pretty easy after the training to follow up with you know the five or six managers that you already have a rapport with and to go, hey, how was that training? Was it impactful? How is this going to help the team? What do you think we could do better next time? So those are the the easy ones as far as feedback is going after those that qualitative stats basically by just having those conversations. Getting it's not very robust, but it's something. One of the other issues I run into this with a lot of the trainings with organizations when you're already on site and have the rapport with them is they want to like go through the training, make sure it's going to fit with their curriculum as far as what they're trying to do. And they start to remove stuff that's like, you'll have certain things and certain trainings for legal compliance. And just to be like, this is the right process to follow to avoid X, Y, Z. And they'll want to take those things out. And I was like, I understand that that might not be the most exciting topic or the most exciting slide, but it is a necessary. So that's kind of where you can get some pushback on it, but you kind of have to be firm and just be like, nope, sorry, that's part of the training. And it's absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Martha, let's go to you. You know, when I was listening to Brittany, that really hit home because that's exactly what we're seeing is you're, you're brought in to do some kind of a training. Maybe it's a matter of checking off a box. Maybe it's a matter of using up a budget to make sure you get the budget next year. But where do we go from there? If there is no uh, commitment from the organization where they promote it ahead of time, they're really um, engaged with it, they're following through after the, the training is completed, then the individual employee is left to either take what they've learned and apply it or not. And some people will do that because if the training was relevant and valuable to them and they see it as something that's helpful, they will. But for those trainings that are mandatory and it takes, I don't know, a miracle to stay awake during those trainings, who's doing what with those? Pretty much nothing. So it's such a difficult thing to say, well, this training will have this amazing impact on people. 
if you have a good training and a good trainer and it's engaging, then you're starting with a good chance. But then what happens after the training? The organization really has to come into play when it comes to how effective will that training be long term? Will it even be implemented in the daily activities for these employees that attended? And I have to be honest, most of the training that I've done you know, in my professional life, there's been very little benefit and absolutely no follow-up. It's just, you know, that checking the box again. Uh, Jeremy, let me bring this back to you now, because do we need to sit down with the, the people making the decisions to bring training in and go, unless you're actually interested in this training and you're willing to go all of the way, you may just be wasting your money. And do they care? Something that can be helpful and those questions are, you know, it's kind of like self-check questions. I found like, people have come to me and said, oh, I want, I want to do this for a, you know, this particular, you know, retreat for our execs or this particular training for our supervisors. And they have, they have a hard time saying, what, you know, what, what do we want to accomplish? What do we want to see after? And really just they're saying, all right, we don't know what to do and we don't even know where to start. And they, they feel bad about it too, because they, they know that that's not, that part isn't the consultant's job. There's got to be some kind of groundwork. So simply asking questions. And even if you're with, even if you're inside a company, asking questions like you start off simple at, you know, at, at the end of these trainings, what do you want the, the people who are taking the training? What do you want them to feel and be thinking on the way home? So it's, it starts to go, Oh, well, you know, and then, and then you start to get some things. I want them to feel supported. I want them to feel that they understand X, Y, Z. I want them to understand the pros and the cons. So right there, you're you're building a foundation. I've talked to so many of you, and so and you you know I, I say this all the time. Whenever somebody comes to you with a problem, it's no longer your problem. It's your it's your job, you know, ninety percent of the time to ask the right questions to get someone else to solve the problem that has been presented to you. Now it's just logistics. So by asking those types of questions, you start to get an outline and a baseline of what they what they're looking for. You also want to get an idea, okay, how do you want them to feel on their you know, when they're logging in for the for the training or when they're when they're driving uh, into in the office for the training or when they're thinking about it the next day. Because that's going to help you decide, okay, who do I want doing the training? What are they thinking now? What do we need to change? Because you want obviously, I doubt anyone's going to say out loud I don't care. I don't even care if they want to take the training. Well, maybe they will. I don't even care if they want to take the training or not. They have to take the training. This is important. You know, at that point, then you use your own, you know, skills, charm, wit, charisma, and start asking some other questions. What happens if this fails? What happens if, because we're not attending to these questions, they take the training? And yes, it's for compliance, but at the same time, what happens if there is some kind of a legal something that happens and you're called into question about, well, tell me about the training. What was it like? And you want to be able to defend some of the things and processes that, that you went through. You know, other things you can do is what do you want to see as a result of this training in three months, six months, nine months? These seem like no brainer questions, but once somebody's pulled in, to help an organization, or if you're in the organization, some people just start right away to processes. All right, so we got to look at the SOP for this. We got to make sure we get the room. We got to make sure this. People get stuck in tunnel vision really quick. But again, that's our job is to get people to think below the surface level of putting out fires every day. So how do you know you take that you take that person and you take them from where are we going? 
How do we get there? And then, yes, you still ask that question. How do we know if we're successful? What happens if we're not successful? You want to get some kind of, of measurement also, whether that's you know promotions per year because of the training, and there is a way to track that, and wh- whether it's a simple survey. And this applies, you know, and I'm trying to, we all have our own schemas in our brain right now. Some people are thinking, you know, password training for technology. So the IT doesn't get mad at you because you clicked on a spam email and phishing. Or some people are thinking, you know, coaching and and leadership training, some people, whatever it may be. So we all have these schemas in our mind. Yes, it's harder for those mandatory trainings, but there's a way. Lest I go on too long, Tom, I'm just going to throw it back to you right now. Well, I'm going to get I'm going to get specific on you. So, diversity and inclusion is a growing topic uh, and a great one. But let's say I'm you know a leader of an organization. I bring someone to do diversity and inclusion training because I want a more harmonious workforce, especially maybe in some of my you know teams that might be working remotely, and I've done, you know, I've had all my employees do it. They've gone through the training. It's now three or six months later. And there are people who have not implemented the training, you know, maybe over the organization, most people have accepted the notions and are using them, but I still have people who either, you know, when the whole topic of diversity inclusion comes up, they have a negative feeling about it, or they've just gone through the training Basically, it was a nice nap. And so there's no implementation. How do we go back and get, you know, that percentage to actually buy in? Let's let's not go back to you, Jeremy. Let's go to Ariana. Yeah, I think that this example in particular brings out the complexities of training and its interface with other organizational systems. So DEI is a topic where there's a lot of different ways to start. You know, you might start with implicit bias and microaggression. And your education might be on that. Or it might also include elements of inclusion and what it means to make someone feel a sense of belonging. But when they go back on the job, it's important that there are structures in place that allow them to call people out. You know, if they see a microaggression, to actually call it out, even if it's a leader. If there are leaders that are perpetrating abusive supervision, to be able to have reporting channels, to go to like a hotline to report it and have actions be taken on that. So I think that that is one of the biggest challenges with trainings, especially when we bring out bring in outside facilitators without enabling them to do the pre-work, to give assignments ahead of time, to survey people, to get that data on the back end, because it's seeing training as this siloed thing rather than an integral part of changing behaviors within an organizational system. So I think it's investing in truly understanding the topic that you're training on, investing in the training itself, creating a space in the organization and structures that support it, and then continuing to measure. And I think there's a lot of those elements that get lost, but also done well does create a new way of engaging with your coworkers where your expectations are now fundamentally altered because of your training. That's the ideal state. And that's when we see most positive outcomes in DEI specifically. Dr. Martha, let's go to you. I think sometimes we are ideal in our approach to how to fix something and we'll have this answer, we'll have this training, everybody will skip into the sunset holding hands and it'll be great, but that's not reality. When I think back to all kinds of trainings over decades, one of the things that keeps popping up in my face is that sometimes you need time and repetition. 
when you think about sexual harassment training, now it's inclusion and diversity, but there was a time when sexual harassment was on everybody's mind. And that was the hot training because that was the biggest problem of the day. That didn't change with one training. You know how many people went into that training making fun of it and making inappropriate remarks, maybe sometimes even during the training, certainly after the training. So this did not happen overnight. It didn't happen with one training. So as much as I'd like to say, yes, we're great. We can come up with this magical training and it's going to take in one try and it's going to work. I don't think that's realistic. Unfortunately, as much as I'd like for that to be true, I think it's going to take time and repetition. Because if you do a training once and that's that, then in some way, you are giving out the message that, well, that training wasn't that important because we're done. We're never going to talk about it again. So time and repetition will have to come into play. Have you brought that up? Let me ask you from your perspective, do you think that specific area of sexual harassment in the workplace has actually gotten better? I think it's gotten better, but it's not gone away. Yeah. And, and once again, that's where that repetition comes in. Right. And because I think the repetition of this training has given a voice to those who were otherwise victimized, where they feel more comfortable speaking up, where maybe a couple of decades ago, you would just have to go home and either grin and bear it or cry your sorrows away into your pillow and accept it for what it was. So I think it's changing. It's not gone away. But I also think it has given a voice to the would-be victims. To speak is, it up. is it standard practice for IOs that when they're pitching programming for an organization to include things like a three-month check-in, a six-month check-in, just to make sure that that training has been implemented? I think it depends. I would. Uh, I think it depends on the consultant, but it also plays into what the organization is willing to do. If they're not going to let you back in for that, then your hands are tied. If they are agreeable, then it's up to you to follow through with it because they may say yes today, but they may not answer your phone call in a month or two or three. It's up to you to keep following up with it so that there is some kind of um, end result or closure or, or statistic on how well that has gone over how effective it has been. Well, Brenda, let me bring this back to you then, because I, you know, I think with your experience, you often get into those situations where, you know, we're not quite there yet. We need the follow-up or are you offering follow-up when you first sit down with your clients? It's not necessarily that uh, I'm willing to do it. It's that it's very much the check the box though. It's the, just a training that comes to mind is for this one client, I was doing a yearly performance management training. And the topic that kept coming up was what's a five, what's a four, what's a three, what's a two. And very much, no matter how many times you have that training, someone either gives people fives that are everyone's general consensus is that person did not deserve a five in their customer service category because they had issues with customers. Um, the training is still, especially that training to be specific is very subjective, but there's always the offer of, look, if we need to go over this again on an individual basis, that's a possibility. I also recommend that to anybody be, uh, who's doing that if they're not on a contract basis, because then there's the opportunity to bill for extra. Jeremy, the, as I'm listening to everyone, it does seem we need a change in the mindset of leadership that 
any type of training shouldn't be just a one-off, that this is a process that's going to take some time. But the whole way that people are working is probably changing. I mean, we <laughs> it's hard to see you know, the forest when you're in the middle of it. But, you know, we could have a whole work environment that is changing now with things like remote or hybrid workforces, the way that the internet is, you know, being implemented now and all the tools that are available. So do we need to sit leadership down and go, look, work, what we call work is changing. Some of the skills are changing. The way that we do it is changing and that you as a leader need to be a change, you know, agent, you need to be the one driving this change. Is, is that where we need to go? Everything falls down to a, a whiff them, to a what's in it for me. And it's constantly stating and seeing things from the leader, the perspective of leadership rather than telling what your perspective is. So if we can, you know, we look at the, you know, what are the, just the natural concepts of, you know, being humans, everyone wants to have a better day tomorrow and everyone wants to feel good about themselves. So how can you make how can you implement those things in terms of what's in it for the particular person that you're talking to? Because if there's a particular training, or even if it's not a training, I mean, there's a strategy to it, especially look, you look at the virtual world that we're in. I think, I think a lot of companies are itching, you know, how do we engage our workforce? One way to do that is to provide a training, but something that they're going to look forward to and, and get engaged in. And one way to do that is to have something. It's not just, hey, you're going to go to this training for an hour. You're not just going to go to this training for two hours, but maybe it's, you know, every Tuesday for two hours for the next three weeks or every other week for a month and a half, whatever it may be. But it gives people a chance for A, for information to sink in, B, for them to try it. And then you can engage them on, hey, well, what, what worked, what didn't work, what's a particular example. And then you can start to incorporate these other concepts that are really important like supervisor support, for example, that's something like 70% of effectiveness of, of any kind of a training is, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I ran training in corporate for like supervisor leadership training, like a nine, 12 week training. And the comment I heard most was, why am I learning to become a great leader, but my boss isn't, and my boss is still not that great. So, you know, how, how can organizations, you know, add that engagement, get more bang for their buck, you have something, one one method is to have, it's this three-person teaching aspect where you have a learning partner, and then you also have your supervisor as a learning partner. So what that means is, so if like say, Tom, you and I, ooh, let me try to figure this out. So let's say, Tom, you're teaching, here you go, Tom, you're teaching me on you know voice and presentation skills, right? So I might pick my coworker and my coworker now is my learning partner. So I learned something from you but then I go teach it to her. So now I'm learning it and I'm putting these things into my brain differently. And I meet with my supervisor for 15 minutes a week. Let's say our thing is like, you know, four weeks long, a couple hours every other day, whatever it is. So now 15 minutes a day, I meet with my supervisor. I share what are the particular things I'm learning. Well, now the company is getting three for one because they're getting three people that have learn these concepts. Plus you get that supervisor added engagement, which companies want anywhere, especially virtually. I've ran these things and no kidding. I had, you know, I, I used to run these big supervisor programs that, like I said, lasted nine or 12 weeks, depending. And uh, there was, when we used to have this, you know, big graduation ceremony in person, everyone would come, yada, yada. There was one time, one of the learning partners learned so much from the course that they got up 
and spoke at the podium during graduation about how much they learned and they were not even in the program. So these are ways that you can get, you know, you enroll 30 people, but you get 90 people to benefit from that particular program. And then it just starts to, again, it starts to bleed into the culture, all these other things. But you also, you know, there's other things that we'll talk about. And Tom, I can't for the life of me remember the question that you asked me initially. Did I, did I, was I close? Uh, yeah, I think you were, but it's just led me to another question. All right, great. Because all of the stuff that you're saying, yes, that's all beneficial. But once again, if we're talking to leadership, especially in the business world, they're wondering about their return on investment. You know, how much is this going to cost me? And is it really going to affect my bottom line? But you and I, about a year ago, had a conversation with an economist by the name of Robert McGarvey with Rethinking Capital with the notion that the way that accounting is being done in business is in the process of change and that the better trained your employees are, the more beneficial they are. And you can actually start to look at them now as an asset in your organization and include that on your balance sheet. So do we have to start talking to leaders going, you know, the better trained your employees more, the more valuable they are. And you can actually now show that on your balance sheet. Is that the language we need to use? That's absolutely part of it. Some consultant at some point in time said, my clients never have the time or money to do it right the first time, but they always have the time and money to do it again because they didn't do it right the first time. And then I'll go back to what happens if we train people and they leave? We just wasted money. Well, the response to that, okay, it was what happens if you don't train them and they stay? So that's a part of it, right? I mean, those are some quick one-liners that actually work and actually, I think, make a difference. But when you look at the problems, like if, if there's a particular training, look at the pros and, and look at the, it's like a cost-benefit analysis. How can you maximize the particular benefits for that particular training? Let's say that there's a struggle with communication from leadership, a struggle with team dynamics, a struggle with some leaders not having a great relationship with their team. Maybe the performance reviews are coming up in three months and all the leaders are new leaders to the organization and they are, quite frankly, as many managers are, not looking forward to it because they don't have a relationship with the people they have to get their performance review to. Well, you can kill a lot of birds with just a single stone here by saying, okay, well, what is your what is one of your biggest headaches that's coming up? What what's what do you, what's keeping you up at night? And here's a particular training. Either we either either you decide to check the box because you have these funds. And yes, you do realize, and yes, it's true that simply offering some kind of training can make give this reciprocal kind of nature from employees, but it's very short-lived and very thin. So you can do that, or you can make it impact all of these particular problems because it's necessary. You've got to ask these questions, see things from their perspective, state from their perspective, what's in it for them, and allow them to make a decision on how to move forward. All right, Linda Ann, let's try your mic again. Can you hear me now? Yay! <laughs> I've been wow, dying was, to hear from you. <laughs> that was crazy. Um, and I apologize if this is uh, rep- repetitive of, of what other people have said, but what's important to think about is people use the word training as a very global descriptor. And there's a difference between training and providing information. 
you know, sometimes you just have to provide information to everybody about, you know, if, if say, sexual harassment or something, if that occurs, there's a process that you need to adhere to, and it doesn't really require change, that part of it, change from people's, in people's behavior right off the bat right then, okay, because it's not applicable at the moment. So you have to really think about are you doing the training just to provide some education about some information, or is it actually something where you do want to affect change? And when you do want to affect change, I think it's really important, Jeremy, I think I touched on this, to be aware of the relevance to that person. If the person cannot see why they are doing this and have some kind of applicability to their life in that area, then it's not going to make any difference. There has to be some kind of internal motivation as to why this is important to me and where is it going to make it, how am I going to use it? And if they don't have that information up front, that to me is the pre-work. You know, why is this important and what does it mean to you going forward? If they can't get those answers, then it's just going to be a lump on a log. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Joe, I'd love to go to you next and just you know, ask you, are you seeing organizations, especially the ones that you're working for, actually looking for the type of change that Lindan's talking about? Are people, do they want the change or are we still in, you know, that experience that I've had most of my career where it's, they're just doing this so they can check the box off and say that, yes, they've given us the training. Right. And I think that does come down to what is the reason for the training occurring to begin with? Sometimes it is to check the box and uh, other times, it's to make people feel good or feel appreciated as workers. And sometimes they actually do want some sort of uh, behavioral change that will lead to increased productivity, efficiency in the workplace. And so a lot of it does come down to documentation and what is the intention behind the training to begin with. And I think something that hasn't really been brought up yet, which I really am encouraging consultants to do for all consulting projects, all training-related consulting projects, is needs analysis. They need to figure out before they do any training, before they go anywhere and do anything with the organization, it's like, what does upper management want? What are the deficiencies in the current employees? What are the uh, things lacking or the things that need to be trained so that people can be successful on the job? There needs to be a very thorough needs analysis to see uh, what actually needs to be done in this training. What what needs to be accomplished? And then what are the actual measurable results that we can look at after we've done the training? So there needs to be a lot of prep work before any actual actions occur, before any training really occurs. Yeah. It's you know, and is it really hard to get organizations to do those needs assessment? Or or can you explain it in such a way that you better do it or you might be wasting your money? You know, I'm I'm gonna be honest and say that it's something that I'm still struggling to persuade upper management about because a lot of times the C-suite executives come in with, I saw this fad strategy to fix our problems. We're going with this. And so you have to, one, persuade them out of whatever fad they want to go with if it's not based off of research and not legally defensible. But then you second have to convince them that spending the money to have consultants assess the situation as a neutral observer is something that is worthwhile for their time and money. And that's a that's a hard sell 
to do. But if they really do care about the training, if they really do care about fixing the deficiencies in their current employees, then they're definitely going to want to do the needs analysis before they implement any sort of training. But it's it's a really difficult sell. And I think just scaling this back, zooming out a little bit, that's really a lot of IO psychology is we have to be very persuasive about what we can bring to the table as a field and organizations and upper management, they're going to maybe come in with some biases, some hesitancies to what we want to do. And they may have never even heard of a needs analysis before. And so it's it's a tough sell. It really is. But I think it's extremely necessary if we want to have actual effective trainings being conducted. Yeah, I agree 100%. You're listening to Work Cookie, a CBOC podcast. We'll be right back after this break. Turnboot. The name is not elegant. Neither are the issues that organizations face. Led by a PhD in industrial organizational psychology, you can rest assured that the highest standards and latest in workplace and human behavior science will be used to get your organization results with a tailored plan specific to your workplace needs. Truly helping others, integrity, positive impact, and getting results. That's what we stand for. That's Turnboot Organizational Excellence. Welcome back. You're listening to Work Cookie, a CBOC podcast. Lee, let's go to you. You know, I've seen a lot of this on both both in uniform and out. I mean, you know, in uniform, it varies broadly across organizations with where you are, with whether or not they'll devote the time to, to training. And the we've been famous for what we call general military training, which you have to take every year. It's a check in the box. It's generally uh, last several years, it's been computer-based training. And we joke about the fact that it's the same one every year. And so we don't even have to listen to it. We can just click the button on the assessment and get our certificate. And we're good for the next year. And these are important topics like suicide prevention, sexual assault. You know, these, are, these are important things. Now, in the last row before I retired, they had started to move more to doing some more, but going back to some facilitation to actually get people a little more bought in. But yeah, it's it's a check in the box and people put it off. But the professional development type stuff, we actually down in Pensacola, we've had, we have an entire command for the Navy that does training for the, for the entire, from the moment you know, Seaman Timmy enters boot camp through when you retire, the whole thing. And my company actually has some contracts down there. And we, you know, just what Joe was talking about with the needs assessments. And uh, a lot of times it's really, tr- really tricky to get the government to buy off on the extra work to figure out how to do it right. And, you know, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen a Band-Aid put on a, you know, a gushing wound because we checked the box. And I've seen so many people that they, they put them in a job and they, they technically they're supposed to be able to do it, but they haven't actually had the training to, you know, and actually for myself, the job I came into the Navy to do went away and that made me something else. And I say, great, am I going to go to training? They said, no. So it was all OJT and everything. And, uh, you know, and I still think I was moderately successful, but I had to do it on my own. And that is a serious problem that I see across organizations. And just to go back to something Jeremy said, you know, uh, one of my favorite things that Richard Branson said was to to train people well enough to leave, but treat them well enough that they don't. Let's make that a statement that everybody does. Uh, Linda, let's go back to you. I just wanted to follow up on what 
uh, Joe was saying about the different doing the assessments prior to doing the training and so forth. I think an additional piece of that needs to be for the organization to also be transparent about the process that was used to bring this training to you. So you don't feel like that this is some just obligatory, out of the blue, like they said, fad kind of thing that we're just doing. People need to understand that the top management cared enough to figure it out. Now they're rolling it out and they're providing it to you so that there's some sense of, we've thought this through and uh, this is why we're doing it. It's always important for people to understand the why. They don't have to agree with the why, but it's important that they understand the why. Yeah, 100%. As you're speaking, my mind's going to all the horror stories I have about going through training. Uh, Brendan, let's go to you. I think Lee touched on something that we haven't necessarily brought up yet. And we've been focused on training more from like a training perspective of a class. But what about OJT? How are you making sure that, number one, OJT is effective? The person training isn't just going, I'm sure plenty of people will agree with me on this. Well, this is the way it's supposed to be done, but this is the way I do. So how are we you know, making sure that that behavior there isn't even impacting somebody's ability to come up to speed on a task, a job, or an assignment? So I pose that as a question. How does this translate to that? How does this translate to on-the-job training? Well, Lee, let's go to you. Oh, man, that's a good one. You know, in this contract that I've been working, one of the things we were doing was updating SOPs before contracts. Went. And I sit down with someone who's doing a job and I look at the SOP and that didn't match at all. And so absolutely what he said, well, this is the way you're, quote, supposed to do it, but this is how I really do it. And so it's really, really important when you do the things like standard operating procedures that you go to the people doing the job and you update those with the way they're actually doing it. Because... I mean, I think we've discussed before about not telling people how to do things and they'll amaze you with their ingenuity. And so a lot of times the way it's written out on paper is not the best way to do it. And so I get a new person who comes in, I hand them this piece of paper, and then I wonder why they're not successful. Because the person who was doing the job took all the knowledge out the door with them because we didn't get the paperwork updated before they left. And man, that and so much of OJT is is really not even written down, though it should be. It's it's word of mouth. You sit with the, the guy who's been there forever. And I don't know how many of you guys have experienced this, probably all of you, that person who works in the black box, they hold everything close to the chest. They don't want their, you know, it's just my knowledge and you can't have it. And they, it's so hard because what happens if they get hit by a bus or they retire or they're, you know, go out for a illness, you know, they, they don't think about that. They just think about, well, I can't get fired if, if nobody can do my job. But the flip side of that is you can't be promoted either. So I always try to teach young people that you know, don't do that. Train your replacement so you can be promoted and don't be this person who's been on the job for 30 years, but nobody knows what they do. Yeah, exactly. And then job security. And that's exactly what they think. But then all of a sudden they go and nobody knows where the bodies are buried. And so you can't keep the job going and you got to reinvent the wheel, which sometimes is better. I mean, sometimes you can get somebody in there and they realize we've been doing stupid things for 20 years. I can't count the number of times I've come in behind somebody and went, why are we doing this? Well, this guy said, it's why we do it. Yeah. So extremely important. I think every job I've been on, there has been a major, major part of OG, especially in the military, because even though you have a specialty, every job is different and a piece of paper is only going to do so much. And you can't ask a piece of paper a question. Right. So. Ariana, let me come to you because you've been listening for an hour, for a while now. <laughs> and, and, you know, I have this experience of 
going through training that, you know, not only did I not ask for it, but it was in, in, a, in a big way, the wrong training. So, you know, really briefly, you know, I was working in a post-secondary institution. They, they wanted to provide us with training so we'd have better relationships, you know, with students. Uh, there had been some reports of, you know, students feeling like they were being harassed, um, that, the, you know, the, the teachers were being too mean to them. And so what they had made us go through was, I think it was in total about 30 hours of training, but the program was based for the workplace, employee-to-employee training. So it wasn't even the right training. So how do we make sure that we're that we're providing the right training for the right employees? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think I think training, I, I struggle to jump in because it is so nuanced. But first, I'm like, who selected this training? You know, what were their set objectives and how did this one get selected? Was there feasibility to tailor it? I mean, knowing your audience and where they're at is a core part of the training needs assessment that people have been talking about. So like, in what ways did they think the training would transfer? And then was the group also, you know, motivated and engaged enough to take the material and see the applicability despite it being different relationships? Like, were there kernels of the training content that was widely applicable or was it not? And another problem that hasn't really been mentioned that I see in organizations is departmental silos, you know, where training and development is offering one training, ethics and compliance is offering one training, human resources, you know, and content is offering a training. And so there's, I think that's another challenge that we talk about with leadership, where a lot of times leaders aren't involved in the training or selecting the training and things like that. And I think when we have this approach of we just need to deliver a training, that sounds like the situation that you went through, where, you know, there's this challenge, let's throw something at it. That's very different than I think what this group would align around around having strategic trainings, where there's set outcomes, you know, your audience each to their training needs, and then you measure success after. I think that what you've experienced is the antithesis of what we would usually use as our approach. Are, are, are some organizations doing too much training? And here, here's what I'm talking about. You know, I, working with an organization right now where, you know, we actually have reminders and we've got a whole website just on the training that they want us to do. And almost once a week, there's some new training document that I have to look at, some new video. But sometimes, you know, I, I'm I'm going through a training on electrical safety. You know, I don't need training in electrical safety. You know, not that I'm an electrician, but I'm, you know, the, the closest I come to electricity is turning my computer on. So are we sometimes just throwing way too much training at individuals just so we can check those boxes? Are you throwing that one back at me, Tom? I am. <laughs> okay. I think sometimes, yes. I think we're getting better at that. Sorry for the plug for my company, but we really do offer ethics and compliance training, which is, it's a blend, you know, between checking the box. Um, I'm proud to say my organization is very values driven. So they try and deliver value in the trainings that we have. But I think that organizations need to be take the selection of their training seriously and not give everyone the training that is really intended for manufacturing employees and things like that. I think that intentionality and knowing, I think also one of the biggest misses that we're seeing in this conversation is knowing what you want to get out of your training. Like we talk about ROI sometimes and we can pull in utility analyses and those get very complex very quickly. But at the end of the day, do most people even know 
what they want to get out of the training that they're providing you. So if they are providing you electricians training, what are they expecting? <laughs> you know, so those are the, some of the questions I would ask. And I feel like these might be situations where we need to ask more questions than give advice, because I think those are where we're going to get our answer. Well, I do know how to hotwire a lawnmower now. So, you know, maybe there's some benefit there. Uh, Dr. Martha, I'd love to go to you t- next because Ariane asked a great question. When organizations are looking for training, have they thought about the outcomes, you know, and what they're actually looking for? I think this goes back to what Joe was saying, doing the legwork beforehand, because the organization may not have given it that much thought. Maybe they had some general idea. Maybe it was just the box they needed to check off. Whatever the case may be, unless you encourage them to think through it some more to a a deeper level, then you're essentially guessing at what it is that that organization is expecting. And your guess may completely miss what they expected. And maybe different people within that management team had different expectations. So the best thing to do is what Joe was saying, do the legwork beforehand so that everybody's on the same page. And then you have a much less chance of providing the wrong training, like what you had said you had experienced. Why provide a training that is not applicable? So I think it all goes back to what Joe was saying. I was so impressed with that. And I keep thinking about it as different things come up. If you do the legwork ahead of time, don't expect or assume that the organization did it or that they did it to the degree that it should have been done or that they're all in agreement with each other. There are so many times where communication is lacking within an organization. So it's up to you as the consultant to straighten all of that out so that you're providing the right training and you're helping the training to achieve what it was meant to achieve or what was desired for the training to achieve. Right. Joe, let's go back to you. That could be a way to persuade upper management to do a needs analysis before a training. Uh, your your example, Tom, of getting electrical training when it's completely irrelevant to you, if you're a consultant and you're charging based off of the amount of people you're training, it might be the case that 10 out of 100 people actually need that electrical training at your organization. And you could target the training to only be for those 10 out of 100 people versus doing a blanket training for everyone. And not only that, but if you have another 90 people who are getting training that isn't relevant for them and that the organization and the consultant hasn't created buy-in for that training amongst the participants, those people are going to be like, why am I getting electrical training? This is dumb. I don't need this. So even the 10 people who may have actually needed the training, they're maybe not going to like it because the majority of people are like, oh, this is dumb. This is stupid. I, I don't I, I don't want to be doing this. And so there's actually a benefit to doing very targeted, very specific training for the people who actually need that training. Um, it, it saves the company money and it makes people feel good about it because it's training that's actually relevant to them. And it, it, reduces frustration amongst people who didn't need the training to begin with. So your example, Tom, is a great example of maybe we're not doing too much training, but maybe we're not doing the right training and maybe we're not targeting training to the right people. Well, it would mean a lot more of the training if I was only doing the training that was relevant to me. <laughs> Linda, let's go to you. Along the lines of, of what you all have just been saying is I think that we need to look at a little bit of how we're doing the training because... Our 
the way we consume information is different now than it has always been in the past. And I think that we maybe need to look at some micro trainings as opposed to that you know, two-day, three-day, week-long training. You know, no matter what kind of educational program I got, have gone to, whether it's a seminar or, or a, a conference or whatever, I always look for what's the one takeaway I'm going to use. So why don't we don't do training so that we are focused on the one takeaway, maybe do it in a coaching format so that it creates more relevance to people and make them shorter so that they actually come away with the one idea or the two ideas that you want to affect change instead of, you know, hosing them down with information. Yeah, that's a great thought. Lee, let's go to you. Oh, man, I tell you, Tom, the, the training that doesn't apply, I mean, you have just described Navy training. You know, I, I can't even tell you the trainings that I have that have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with anything I've ever done. But anyway, back to Martha's point, you know, a lot of times when you go into our training, the very first thing you say is, is what they call enabling objective. What we kind of problem is, is that at the end, we don't assess, did you learn it? So figuring out what you want is great. The assessment and all that stuff is fantastic, but then you got you to gotta follow that up with the, the deal end. You should learn it. Because if you didn't, well, I mean, I just paid you to me thinking about what to do for supper tonight, and you didn't get anything out of it. So to wrap this around back to to a, a really hot topic right now is diversity. You know, like Linda Ann also mentioned about not everybody learns the same, but also different cultures. We have international companies out there. All of your employees, they don't need the same information, nor do they learn the same. And so you really, you're going to have to consider that as well. And uh, and also who's presenting the training? Because if it's one of us, we've come in, we've done a you know a needs assessment, we've designed a training, we presented the training. You know, you can you would assume that we're familiar with the information. And but a lot of times, what these companies do is they have somebody who may just be Joe in accounting make up a training, and then you end up with peer. You get a peer facilitator who may or may not know the information, and when you ask questions, and they give you a dumb look. Because, they, you know, oh, check in the box. We got that training out of the way, but we didn't have someone who was actually knowledgeable on the subject providing that training. Or, or even worse, sometimes they're knowledgeable, but they're really bad presenters. You know, I, I for years when I was working in post-secondary, once or twice a year, I would do a presentation, a training session for other instructors who the main feedback they got from their students was, your lecture is boring. Uh, Jeremy, I think we better bring it back to you because our hour is almost up, and I'm sure there's some CBOC news to share. There is a quick note on those trainings that are mandatory that people say this isn't for me. You never know when I, when an organization had, you know, like with the electrical thing, maybe they had maybe they had an accident at work. Um, maybe someone got injured or died and therefore, you know, maybe legal suggested that everyone take it. Maybe that somebody suggested. So there might be a background to that. Um, and you can always if you're inquisitive, you can just say seems like something happened in the past that prompted us to need this training. And then if they want to share, they can share. So, yeah. So right after this, we have CBOT game time. Science says, if I hold up a picture of the box, you guys are more likely to come and hang out. Here's a picture of the box. It's called Mind Trap. If you don't have a, if you don't have a ticket yet, free ticket. We're going to play for a half hour in about a minute. Just go to cboc.com events and, and get a ticket quick and join us. Uh, also, there is a resource download if you go to the site. And uh, there's uh, resources. There's a guide I wrote back in 2019, but Tom and everyone, I tell you, timeless. The concepts are timeless. It's called 10 Training Tactics Proven to Turn Learning into Behavior Change. I'll just give you a quick rundown of the contents. 
how to skip awkward introductions, making index cards your best friends, how to run discussions, how to keep PowerPoints to a minimum and why, constantly checking the energy in the room, tell stories, get other people to solve your problems and make them feel great and recall rather than rewind and review and supervisor support is a must. It's a quick eight pager. So you might want to check that out. Um, also, we have happy hour. We're going to do a round two with expanding functions of HR, the relationship between HR and IO and about the expanding functions of each of those. That's in uh, late July. That's one of our $10 events. Of course, CBOT members get in free. Um, also, we're doing another mixer towards the end of the month with um, Destiny Priest Military Organization and CBOC. So that's on the website as well. And then, of course, if you're a company looking to work with a consultant without getting into a heavy consulting relationship, there is CBOC membership for that. Also, early career IOs and expert IOs as well. That's what we're here for. And next week, we're going to be talking about the hidden role of industrial organizational psychology in marketing. Yes. Yes. Very fun. That'll be a rip from the headlines. We'll have a fun discussion with that one. All right. And with that, Jeremy, I think we should wrap it up. You want to count us out of here? See you guys next time. Thank you, everyone. Great time. Five, four, three, two, and one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? Don't forget to check out our corporate, career boost, recruiter, and even student memberships at seabock.com.